Welcome to Books and Nachos, a podcast for those of us who find excitement in the pages of a good book. At booksandnachos.com, you can find over 100 reviews from fiction to nonfiction, graphic novels, and more. There's also links to our forums, our Facebook and Twitter pages, and information about our Podbean crowdfunding campaign. At booksandnachos.com, we're here to find you something great to read. Diane, it's December 2017, and we're here to discuss the final chapter of Twin Peaks. This is Stuart. And this is Arnie. And welcome back after a long time between Twin Peaks episodes. The last time we thought about Twin Peaks, well, I've thought about it, but the last time we discussed Twin Peaks was that finale on Showtime. I know the Blu-ray set's about to come out with hours and hours of extras that explain. They don't answer any questions. If that's what you're hoping, there's not going to be any answers in that set, it's a lot of the filmmaking process and how it was done. So if we want answers, we're going to look at Mark Frost's latest book, right? Twin Peaks, The Final Dossier. The book that promises to have what the last book promised to have. <laughs> well, you always held that against the last book, I felt. Like, you, I think, are on record saying, I wanted the last book to be more about the characters that we knew and what they had been doing between seasons two and seasons three. And yes, that's definitely what we're getting here today. But I just want to put it out there first and foremost. Are there lingering mysteries after that season finale? Is this poor timing to have a book coming out after what seemed like the final word on everything that Lynch had on that 18th episode? And I was very frustrated when the 18th episode ended because I felt nothing was tied up. I mean, why give us that mystery with Audrey and that very last shot of Audrey, the white room, and why give us all of these various subplots that in the end are all, what, erased by the actions of the final episode, and we go into a parallel timeline and an alternate reality? I mean, what does it matter? Why did we spend so much time with those characters and on those plots to not go anywhere? There, I have nothing but questions when credit rolled on season four. Questions and frustrations. Okay, see, I guess you could go either way with it. I would go the other way in saying that, oh, none of it really mattered. As someone that had studiously tried to create a timeline and figure out things, it was like I had felt like I've been punked and <laughs> that none of this really matters. And it was just about the journey and the individual moments. And I think I'm more forgiving than you, Arnie. I, I did find it inspiring and initially compelling that Lynch pushed so hard against the boundaries of TV. I think it's cool that we discovered a new way to explore a mystery. I mean, I do think that's what season three did. It relegated most of the clues to off-screen or in the background. I respect the fact that it pursued art. But yeah, at the end of the day, I'm just not left with a lot of questions because it just kind of felt like a waste of resources. I guess I would say when I think about it, we're now three months beyond that season finale. They had so much time so many characters, so many subplots. So much money. Yes, not to mention, yeah, everything Showtime laid out gave Lynch seemingly everything that he needed to deliver on what 
as fans of the ABC run of the show, we wanted resolutions. And yeah, at the end of the day, I think there are probably a handful of really great scenes, mm -hmm. creepy things that I'll always cherish and remember. Hours and hours of corny jokes that, <laughs> and tedium, you know, filling out forms, circling things and drawing ladders. And just a complete disdain for us for wanting those answers. A complete disdain for anyone that wanted resolution. We'll either do it slapdash or we'll just tell you that none of it mattered. And, you know, I just couldn't shake the feeling that it all would have been so much better if Lynch had stuck to Mark Frost's nine scripts. So I guess... If there is a reason to come to this book, for me, the expectation is that maybe Mark Frost can reclaim some of the creative vision. That's what I'm here to. I'll admit that I came to this book half-hearted. This is the first book in Books at Nacho's history that I didn't read, I listened to. Mm. I was on a 36-hour road trip. This was a three-hour audiobook. And I like to listen to my audiobooks at 1.5x. I often listen to audiobooks, especially for books and nachos. But what I'll do is I'll read a book and then I'll audiobook it after so that I can refresh myself about the beginning and discuss what the audiobook is. In this case, honestly, I walked away from Twin Peaks so disgusted. Not only didn't I want this book, I never wanted to see a donut again. <laughs> <laughs> and and this is quite an interesting take that you've taken because I remember very distinctly when we covered Secret History, the book that Mark Frost wrote in the build-up to season three, you were like, whatever you do, don't listen to the audiobook because you'd be missing so much of the experience. But I do think there's big differences between Secret History and this dossier. I'll admit, I bought the printed book with the intent of reading it because... Yes, the audiobook for the first one, because I did listen to some of it to refresh myself because I'd read it earlier than you did and I needed to remind myself what was in it. It was a headache-inducing assault of footnotes and parenthetical notations and multiple voices that could not be kept straight in audio. This is almost the exact opposite. This feels like Mark Frost getting through it as quickly as possible giving us information in a data dump without taking the time. And I know he wrote this under a deadline. He wrote this in half the time of the last one. He had to churn it out fast. He didn't go through the trouble of making fake memos and entries in diaries and this, that, and the other that Tamara Preston, yes, she's back as our archivist again. This is Tamara Preston's typed summary. And so it actually worked really well in audiobook format. It was very straightforward to hear her report. And man, you want to start off on a bad foot. Yeah, let's make Tamara Preston front and center again. <laughs> One of the worst new characters of the series, not because of the writing, 100% because of the actress. Yeah, it is perhaps my least favorite new addition to Twin Peaks. I mean, I was unhappy with some of the things that they did to characters. But yeah, Tammy, she makes sense only in the sense that, we, you know, she was the, the newbie to this. She did not know the world. And so she's going to have a perspective that anybody else in FBI or Blue Rose is not going to have. She's untainted. So in that respect, she makes sense as a central character. But boy, I did not want to hear her voice in my head. Did she do the audiobook? Is it Crystal Bell? No, it's just a voice actress. The same as the first book. Mm. It was not the actress from the series who, when I read that first book and found out about the audiobook, remember, 
I read it and listened to it before we knew much about this third season of Twin Peaks. Nobody even knew if Tamara Preston was going to be a character. I'm really disappointed, you know, looking back at Secret History, that it never tied into the series. The great thing about Agent Cooper's tapes or Laura Palmer's Secret Diary is when you watched the series, at one point, Cooper finds Laura Palmer's Secret Diary and goes and reads it. And while you get the germane points in the series, it's great to be able to go deeper. I really expected that if you're going to have a book that Tamara Preston has marked up with the secret history of Twin Peaks that is coming from being found near the body of Major Briggs, or at least the fire where Major Briggs presumably died, that at some point in this series, somebody's going to go, Tamara, take this and look at it and write me up some notes just because otherwise, what have we got here? What I feel about both books is... These latter two Twin Peaks books are the most disconnected from the series that they've been. And I think it's because, as you said, Lynch was on set rewriting the scripts on his own. We found out a lot more about the process since the series ended. Frost wrote nine scripts. Lynch then rewrote the nine scripts, sent them to Frost, said, what do you think? Frost said, yeah, great, Dave, go do it. And... Frost got sole writing credit, but if you think what we saw on screen was pure Lynch, you're exactly right. And that makes these two books feel more disconnected. I mean, they can't even get some continuity right with the original series in the last book when they talk about how Ed and Nadine and Norma all met. I mean, they weren't right in secret history about that, and there's more continuity errors we'll talk about with Final Dossier. Here's the difference. I liked secret history. I mean, I think it was more fun to look at a history of America and see how it could be tied back to Twin Peaks mythos. I was completely fine with that. Here, the focus is much smaller. That's one of the big changes, is that, yes, instead of 200 years of supernatural history surrounding the Pacific Northwest... It's basically just very brief character write-ups. We are going to get a litany of all of these people, what they were doing between season two and season three, and in a few cases, what they were doing after season three as well. But it is not going to be focused on all of the iconography. What does Tamara know? What did she even learn in her view of these things? She is a strange choice to be giving us a history of these characters because she has no relationship to really any of them. And that must be why it's so short. This book is half the length of Secret History as well. Not only is it all her voice, not only is it a smaller segment looking at Twin Peaks, but it's barely there. It's so small, you wonder, could it have just been incorporated in the original novel? Did it need to be a follow-up book? I really question that. It was a late addition to the publishing schedule. They didn't announce that there would be a follow-up book when Secret History came out. And in fact, when Secret History came out, it promised. It swore in the marketing material that it would tell you what happened to the people of Twin Peaks between the original series and today, catching you up on 25 years of minutia that they couldn't put in a series in a reasonable manner. I mean, that's my interpretation. And then when we got it, there was so little that took place after Evil Cooper came out of the Black Lodge in the series finale of the ABC run. I don't have any factual details, but it feels to me like somewhere Frost was either told 
not to write it or he wrote it and told don't put that stuff in and so he had ideas for material and is like well if i can't put it into the book before the series because it might be spoilers then i'll put out another book after the series as an addendum i'll write my ideas in a much quicker way because i don't have as much time and get it out there the other thing is this is far more earthbound we will touch a little bit on some of the Twin Peaks supernatural aspects, but by and large, this is the talk of the normal people. Whoever made that decision is correct. If we had read this book before we saw that series, which we knew nothing, the night of its premiere, minutes before, I'm like, I'm shocked that I know so little about this series. So much of those 18 hours was predicated on us trying to sift through relationships and, okay, what happened between these two and who was this person? If we knew that Shelley Johnson and Bobby Briggs had a daughter named Becky, if we knew that Audrey Horn had awoken from a bank explosion pregnant, all of these things would have totally killed the suspense, whatever there was of the suspense, that was dragged out so long. They could not have had 18 hours teasing things if there was a book that already told us flat out what was going on. And I really wonder, I'll never know how the season three rewatchability is. So if you go back, you'll have to tell me. I did more or less rewatch it the night before the premiere. So, I mean, I have seen the episodes multiple times and I can imagine doing it at some point. Should there be a season four? I don't think there'll be a season four. But yeah, to your other point, it is strange. What is established in this book is that Tammy is a year on from the investigation. That dossier, which was revealed at the end of Secret History to be the work of Major Briggs, was found, what, near his body in Buckhorn. But they never show that on the show. No, and I don't even think we knew it was in Buckhorn. It was just found near his body. I always thought it was perhaps in the wreckage of the fire, because remember, it was in a safe. It was in a protected spot. Yeah, but I mean, they would have had that 25 years ago. I know. I don't. I thought that the series would reveal it. I mean, hey, they found mystery things in chairs and went into the woods and found some things Briggs left around. He could have left something else. Yeah, but at no point in the show do these actors pick up this archivist dossier and at no point does Cole say, hey, I don't know where in the timeline he would have had time, but we are told it is now September 6th. 2017, one year after everything. So everything we saw on the show supposedly happened now in 2016. That is semi-confirmed by this book. And like I said, we are now going to be walking through chapter by chapter. It's devoted to one character after another. I think for me, there's not a whole lot that is revealed, I think, about the big picture stuff, the supernatural stuff, as you talk about the most revelatory stuff is about the characters who do not appear at all. For example, we got Donna Hayward. A big portion is devoted to who was a major character, a favorite character of mine during its initial run. What happened to Donna? We're going to learn that here in this book. So if that's something that you want to know about, you're probably the only audience for what's going to be in this book. Agreed. I think that was the most interesting stuff for me as well, is Mark Frost was the one who pretty much stuck it out. He kind of took a little bit of an absence in season two himself, leaving the show without any captain. Yeah, that middle episodes, uh, everything after Leland uh, was uh, dead, yeah. But he's the one who did write and stay as showrunner for most of the episodes beginning to end. So 
I think we said it in Now Peaking. Lynch brought back the characters Lynch created. So Lana Budding, Milford, and Annie, and Wyndham Earl, despite being the crux of that entire second season, Lynch didn't create them. They're not in Lynch's mind. He didn't want to go back there. But they were Frost creations. So he finishes that up. As for Donna, I still wonder why they didn't approach Moira Kelly. I mean, everybody knows why they didn't get Laura Flynn Boyle. But Moira Kelly was the last Donna we ever saw on screen. I think she could have done it if Lynch had wanted that character. But maybe he didn't want to continue the recast. But Donna's done bad in this book. Yeah, I don't know that everyone does know why Laura Flynn Boyle wouldn't be approached to return to this series. I heard that she wanted to be. And yeah, why don't you Google how she's doing these days? It almost seems cruel. It almost seems like this is a thinly disguised slam against Laura Flynn Boyle in the way that they talk about Donna. That Donna basically, as soon as she learned that Ben Horn was her biological father, ran away, went to school on the East Coast, dropped out of college to be famous. She was going to be a model and was kind of a trophy wife and a husband hunter for about 10 years. Not unlike Laura Flynn Boyle, who couldn't wait to get away from the series and do big pictures and date Jack Nicholson. And then all of a sudden, there was an incredible fall from grace. Rehab, found in a crack house. I thought that was particularly mean. Thrown in a psych ward. And then eventually, it's said that... Well, if you want to know where her father was in his brief cameo of season three, he had retired to New Haven, and it said that in middle age, she returned to live with him in his care. After her mother had died, and it's really unlike Donna to believe that the Donna we saw, the senior in high school who was playing Nancy Drew with James and doing all this investigating would run off to be a model. Yeah. That doesn't fit that character at all. I mean, go to college, have some influences, maybe something changes, but that she just ran away from home to become a supermodel and live this high lifestyle. It's strange. I mean, I, I'll admit, it's something that I could see Lynch doing in the series because it's certainly not what I would have expected any more than Dr. Jacoby to be painting shovels. Yeah, I, again, I feel like the, this is a unkind portrayal of Laura Flynn Boyle herself and not the character that she was playing for two seasons. And there is an uncomfortable quality in that so many female characters, I feel like when we learn their history, it's like, oh yeah, they totally cracked up and were thrown in a nut house. I mean, the only character to do well, it seems like, is my least favorite. Lana Budding Milford leaves Twin Peaks. Not only does she get all the money inherited from Dougie Milford, but she gets the crown from Miss Twin Peaks. She actually will earn that title that she wanted so badly and ended up going to the East Coast as well, searching for fame and fortune. And I thought in a funny bit of political speak, she ends up dating, quote, a notorious resident of a certain eponymous tower on Fifth Avenue who was either between wives, stepping out, or merely window shopping. Fifth Avenue in New York City, actually 725th Avenue in New York City is Trump Tower. And yes, they do imply that he is wearing that jade ring, that he <laughs> has the evil signet, and maybe that's why he got to be president. 
And if you follow Mark Frost on Twitter, I had to unfollow him because it was nothing Twin Peaks. It was like I was following the Democratic National Committee. He hated Trump during the election. He hates Trump now. And so to put that ring on him, yeah, that's Mark Frost doing what he can to show his blue stripe down the back. And it's funny. I mean, again, I could imagine Lana Budding going for Trump and vice versa. They seem like a perfect couple. She probably should be our first lady. But no, she ends up disappearing to France and presumably... I, she did get a husband that she didn't kill. That was kind of nice to see. She isn't toxin to every man that she meets. But basically, because we never really cared about this character, yeah, it's just a way of taking a swipe at Trump. But again, this cracking up thing. I mean, we'll find out Annie. This was a big mystery at the end of season two. Annie, I thought she was dead. And then when we rewatched it, it was like, oh, no, I guess she's fine. But guess what? She's not fine. She actually, the day that the Cooper double, whatever you want to call him, Mr. C, or, you know, what everyone thought was Cooper, but really was his evil doppelganger, left Twin Peaks. She lapses into a 10-day coma, comes out of it, has to be an invalid and be under the care of her sister or half-sister. We'll talk about it. Norma Jennings. And then eventually tries to kill herself again and gets institutionalized. I mean, it's a theme again and again. If you don't know what to imagine for these characters, just throw them in the nuthouse. Yeah, it really is sad that even after the last season, so few people can have happy endings. It is an intentional thing that most of these people end up dead, crazy, sick, go on through a bad time. I mean... I guess you could say that Donna came out the other side and Maybe. is with her dad, but everybody has this downfall. It's It really was depressing to be listening to this and be like, okay, how about this next character? Oh, they had some shit luck too. Yes, thematically, you're right. Some of this is by choice that we want to uh, be in theme of season three where everything is sad. I mean, that is one thing that's pervasive in that although there's a lot of silly comedy, ultimately every character arc is tragic and maybe Mark Frost wanted to keep that going. But I also just think it's uncreative. I mean, the idea that everyone's in a sanitarium is kind of annoying after a while. And another thing that is annoying, you've pointed it out, is that he is rewriting Twin Peaks history, that he is, we saw in Secret History, he was like, I want to, he wrote the episode where we found out how Nadine got her eye shot out, and then in Secret History, he said, I'm going to throw all of that away and tell it in a different decade, in different circumstances, and make it nothing like what was established on the show. Here, I think they do that again with the backstory of Annie and Norma. Oh, this Again, I was listening to it, but I did have to pull out the book, and I did have to re-listen to these chapters. I'm like, did I hear this right? Because it is very clear in the series. I'll, well, some things are very clear in season two. If you remember those episodes, Norma Jennings had her diner, and they were all worried because the famous critic, M.T. Wentz, was coming, and they had to get the diner all made up. But then, who happens to come in television sitcom fashion to throw a wrench in it is her mother with her new husband Ernie Niles. Ernie of course is mixed up with Hank and is an ex-con and there's all that that leads into the drug bust but there's all this mother-daughter drama 
between Vivian and Norma that goes on and on for episodes and how you never believed in me. And then it turns out Vivian is the famous M.T. Wentz and wrote a bad review of Norma's Diner, causing a rift that in soap opera fashion may have been fixed in season three or four had the show continued. And Annie is never connected to Vivian in the show. It's only because we know Norma's mother and now Norma's sister that we know they share a mother, presumably. But this book completely rewrites the entire M.T. Wentz thing. There is no M.T. Wentz. It's not a famous critic. It's something that Vivian makes up. She writes a single article and pays for it to be published under the name M.T. Wentz. She is not actually a food critic. She's just a bitch. Not only that, she's not Norma's mother. Norma's mother dies in 1985 of cancer or something like that. This is her stepmom. Her dad stepped out on her mother and had a life downstate in Spokane with a woman that ran a hotel that he owned. And after he died, she got mixed up with another guy, but she had a child with Norma's dad. So Annie is their stepsister. This is the stepmother who was never in Twin Peaks, who never had any involvement in the Double R Diner or food criticism, or Norma herself, I think they wanted to tell us the backstory of Annie, you know, because because she had attempted her life, they give some excuse here about how Vivian was dating a man who sexually assaulted her and then killed himself. That's what sent her to the convent. That's what sent her, you know, to slit her wrists. Maybe you wanted to know that. Maybe you didn't. But then they also changed things by saying she met Ernie years before the timeline established. Maybe she's lying to Norma. I don't know if it would play or not. But yeah, they, they basically just want to establish Vivian as a much more evil character. And Tammy goes on at great length about how much disdain she has for this woman and all the men that she's betrayed. And poor Ernie Niles. Like, who was saying that during Twin Peaks? <laughs> but poor Ernie Niles ends up penniless and dying in a waiting room of a hospital. Yeah, they really do paint Vivian as somebody who just marries a little bit above her status again and again to just social climb and leave the men in her wake dead or penniless. Yeah, not a character I would dare say that many people that watch the show ever thought too much about, and it is maybe one of the biggest bio write-ups in this novel. So again, you know, priorities. Are these the things you want to know? Do you want to know about characters like... Vivian or Lana Budding Milford. I did want to know about Wyndham Earl. I mean, that was a big thing is we think we know what happened to Wyndham. He got his head ripped open by Bob in the Black Lodge at the end, but he'd left Leo hanging or something hanging above Leo. And what went on with Wyndham Earl, and it did feel like that was closed at the end of the season, but there were so many things, so many cliffhangers at the end of season two that this book does try to put paid to. Wyndham Earl is never found, so there's no body that comes out of the lodge, no fake Wyndham Earl. And Leo, I mean, Eric DeRay does not come back, so, you know, what happened to him? It was implied that he was dead. I think we all assumed that he had died, or maybe it had even been said he had died. Uh, they make a point of, of showing us the autopsy, that Albert actually found the body, and know that cage full of tarantulas didn't kill him, because tarantulas aren't poisonous. He was apparently <laughs> shot by Wyndham Earl in a scene that we didn't see on the show. 
So he was shot maybe in the stomach because like Reservoir Dogs say, you can live with that for three days because we did see him in the final hour looking up at those tarantulas. But I like that Mark Frost is kind of owning up to some bad writing that tarantulas are only used in movies because they look scary, but they can't really kill you. Yeah. So again, now we're kind of getting into the mysteries that are teased by this new season that we all know there were things left unexplained when the finale happened. But were there subplots about characters that you cared about that you wanted to know? I think one of the things that has given a lot of room in the third season is Dr. Jacoby reimagining himself as a podcaster. And so I think they give a lot of pages to this, how he came to that, traveled around. And I think, you know, Secret History was so much fun in the way that it would tie to real world events. I think it's a real strain that he was involved in the recount of George Bush mm-hmm. in Florida in the 2000 election, or that he was in New York when the Trade Center Towers went down September 11th. I don't think they're getting the same mileage when they're trying to tie historical events to these characters. But if you want to know when he started the podcast and video cast and, you know, golden shovel thing, there is extensive well, for at least as far as these bios go. None of them are extensive. None of them are more than eight pages, but he gets one of the longer profiles. And I felt that was unnecessary. I felt like we got what we needed from him by the end of the season three run. And so between Secret History and the new series, I didn't really need that final piece of connective tissue. We knew in Secret History, he lost his license to practice. He went to Hawaii. I mean, that makes sense for him. How he got back and came Dr. Amp, was something that could have been given a paragraph and I'd have been happy. Yeah, I didn't even think it was that funny in the show. That was one of the things I was wincing every time we were cutting back to those monologues of screaming. But you just sensed that Lynch loved it, and it it did play such a large part, ultimately, of that third season. I guess they felt like they needed to give it a large part here. But yeah, I didn't care about that at all. James? I mean, we've never loved James, but I was curious to know what the accident that made him seemingly brain damaged. But what we find out is, like Jacoby, he traveled the world, too, that he had to run. Uh, Evelyn Marsh ended up being a big deal. The authorities (laughs) wanted him for something. I'm not sure what the charge was, but he went to Mexico and ended up working for gangsters. He fixed the cars of Mexican gangsters for many years. That sounds like James. That's like classic James, is that he would end up stupidly fixing cars for the worst criminals and just be like, Okay, mister, I got your car done. And (laughs) Yeah, never knowing. Yeah, he was just not very savvy. Again, I think we find out he's not brain damaged. He eventually had to come back to Twin Peaks and do like six months in jail and then ultimately went to the East Coast. Everyone goes to the East Coast, I guess. And it's said that there is a runaway coal truck that gives him a compound leg fracture. Nothing is mentioned about brain damage at all. So if he seems slow in the third season, I think that that's just saying that he never got wise. Yeah, I agree. And the way they say he's not been the same since the accident and with his shaved head, we all thought something went wrong in that noggin. Mm -hmm. And he has trouble speaking and he is so socially awkward. He's never been cool, but he's so much worse in season three. But yeah, it ran over his leg and he's never been the same since. But it does talk about how he worked security at the Great Northern and 
Yeah, it doesn't walk with a limp. I again, you, is the left hand talking to the right hand? At what point is Mark Frost writing that and then seeing the finished show? I mean, that's what you wonder here because I'm not getting a good sense that he's captured anything aspect of the characters that we watched in season three. Another case in point is Audrey Horn. I think he would have you believe that she raised Richard, that she was a good mom. It said that she, after spending three and a half weeks in a coma when the bank exploded, went off and decided to be responsible, opened a beauty salon, ran her own business without her dad's money, and was so disgusted with him that he ended up selling Ghostwood Estates so a prison could be built that she had nothing to do with him. Or maybe she didn't like the divorce. I don't know. But this was like... Huh? To me, that's revelatory to think, okay, she had a hand in raising Richard. She must have known at some point he's a bad seed or something. She marries Charlie. We all thought that maybe that was a figment of a black magic spell that had been put on her (laughs) by Cooper. No, in 1999, when Richard would have been 11 years old, she married her accountant and they must have had some raising of this guy together. You don't see that connection at all in the Lynch stuff. There is no mention of Richard or parenting or anything. And all that said here is that she disappeared from public life in 2013. So that's about three years of nobody knowing where she was. It's mentioned that she did spend some time in a mental institution Mm, and that they all women do here. (laughs) And she did step out on Charlie. So He walks this line. Everything we see with Audrey and Charlie in this series could be real. Down to her crazy dance on the floor that all could have happened because she is married. Charlie is real. She does cheat on him and they do have this contentious relationship. But she also spent time in a mental institution. So it also could all have been in her head. And when we see her in that white scene... Frost is not going to bite the hand that feeds him. Frost is not going to overwrite or overrule Lynch. If Lynch doesn't answer, Frost isn't going to answer a mystery like that from the episode. So we're left saying maybe it all happened. Yeah, and that's why I'm ultimately very disappointed in this book. If you're having the final dossier, that means you get the final word. That means that you can trump whatever was left ambiguous and say, this was my vision at no point. Do I feel like Frost, yeah, steps over that line and says, I'm taking this away from Lynch and making it more about what might have been in those nine scripts I wrote. You don't see that. I think that's a missed opportunity. I think I would have appreciated more insights. I'd rather he published the nine scripts than basically just kind of sum up what Lynch did without giving any more concrete details. Maybe there's a few. I mean, let's get to the big stuff. You have to wait till almost the very end of the dossier to get to what I would call the major storylines that you really care most about, namely Major Briggs, you know, the guy, the archivist that essentially compiled the secret history. Now Tammy is walking through a scenario in which she's hypothesizing how he might have faked his own death the day that evil Cooper came to see him. And that was a little bit interesting. I mean, we wondered what was with the body. I don't know that it's ever fully explained because the body, as found, was the age it should have been 25 years earlier. He didn't age in Twin Peaks world. So even if he went into hiding, even if he 
stayed alive and was only killed before season three, he should have been a lot older. Yeah, and I think that's why Tammy is willing to hypothesize that he went into the Black Lodge or some zone like the Black Lodge, a supernatural realm that he was hiding out from Evil Cooper for 25 years, probably would have stayed there for another 100 years, except that he was contacted and exposed by these nutballs from South Dakota, Bill Hastings, Ruth Davenport. They reached out to him, and then he tried to use them to hack the FBI or something. Again, I got glimmers of all these storylines, but I couldn't make sense of it watching the show. It is not going to be made more concrete with the way that Tammy is assessing it here in a final dossier. I thought the point of a dossier would be to underline your idea of what might have happened. And here I learned nothing more than I did watching the show. The only thing I got is that we had this discussion about the room with the zigzag floor and the red curtains. Is it a waiting room? Is it the Black Lodge? Is it the White Lodge? The room with the outlet where Cooper goes and the big bell on top that goes into space. The book does say zigzag floor, red curtains, Black Lodge, purple room with the bell on top, White Lodge. Yeah. Okay. And, you know, it also states that Evil Cooper, for 25 years, did become some criminal mastermind that bought that building in New York. What I would still argue is the very coolest aspect of season three, that whole stuff that had nothing to do with characters we knew, well, that was Evil Cooper's place. That glass box and the teenager that watched it, for whatever reason, was working for Mr. C. The thing that would make that fulfilling is why? (laughs) (laughs) And those are, again, if you're looking for those answers, it only will go so far in this very small, very unambitious book. Philip Jeffries is brought up here, too. I had forgotten part of one of that whirlwind revelations of the last two hours of the show is that Ray Monroe actually was working for the FBI. and it's, <laughs> That it's, was so wrong. Yeah, I was like, huh? But here they underline that a little bit more. If you wanted to understand that, I suppose it's mentioned that Philip Jeffries, who was chasing a Sumerian demon, more about that in just a second, knew that Evil Cooper could be infiltrated, so they needed a criminal. And so he met this guy, I think through Duncan Todd in Vegas, he met Ray Monroe and told him to go work for Evil Cooper. And I guess one thing that this book does underline, I I didn't get from the show, in his death scene, Ray Monroe said that Philip Jeffries now lives in The Dutchman. And we, I, I racked my brain and was like, was that something ever revealed before? No, the first time it's ever underlined is here in the final dossier. Spoiler alert, I'll just go ahead and tell you because it's not that interesting. <laughs> but it is a hotel where gangsters hid out in the 1930s. It was demolished in the year 2000, so now it's a spiritual realm. But if you wanted to know where Philip Jeffries is living now, you don't know why he's a teapot, (laughs) but you know at least that that hotel he was living in was a place that was notorious for for hiding, shielding people that were uh, criminals. I'll give the book this. It's solidified theories. Yes. Because we talked through for so long that season and each episode made the previous ones a little more clear and by the end i felt like we had a grasp but it had been such a long road for season three yeah i wasn't sure and here the stuff with audrey the stuff with the teapot the stuff with philip jeffries it all went okay yeah i got it okay that helps put what 
all right, I wasn't really worried, but if I was worried, it would have put my mind at ease. Yeah, I, I, I think one last one, a big one that I had was that girl that ate a bug back when they were tested in the nuclear bombs and all of that is for sure. We're told for sure it is Sarah Judith Novak, later to be Sarah Palmer. We're not going to talk about Judy. (laughs) So I think we should talk about Judy or or Jowdy just a little bit because it is one of the last (laughs) chapters here. That's still the worst thing in season three. (laughs) Jowday, Judy. (laughs) Yes. A wandering demon from Sumerian mythology that feasts on flesh and souls. It is the female counterpart to the devil. What's kind of interesting, what I appreciate about Tammy underlying, we kind of, I think we're almost there in looking at the show, but essentially there are these two evil spirits that are bad enough on their own, but when they come together, they actually bring about the end of the world. And so that I think that that is what we're supposed to think about with Leland being infected with Bob and Sarah Palmer being infected with Jowd A. What they created is supposed to bring about the end of the world, which begs a whole lot of questions about who Laura Palmer is, but they're going to stick with what Lynch gave us on Laura Palmer as well by saying she's saved from ending the world or dooming us to that gloom by being rescued by Cooper. Yeah, what we saw did happen, and it gives a little bit more clarity. He saved her, and then we don't quite know what happened to him, but she ran away that night. So it's kind of weird to think through because this book has discussed a lot of things that happened, the entire series spins out of her murder and people interacting in ways they hadn't before because she died. Yes. And so now it's not who killed Laura Palmer, it's what happened to Laura Palmer as far as that town is concerned. She just became a runaway. And what happened that night, and I kind of expected it would never be answered. So the book does shed a little bit of light on this is, Leland Palmer, inhabited by Bob, still went to the train car. I don't know if one-armed Mike was banging on it outside like we saw in Firewalk with me. Terribly, terribly (laughs) directed, yes. But Ronette Pulaski was still there, you know, partying with Leo and Jacques. She was abducted. I Mm -hmm. mean, the night proceeded, except that I guess at some point Leland, after banging her around, realized she wasn't the one that he needed and left her alive. So Ronette live through this attack as she did in the series too yes it ends up changing the way that you look at twin peaks because twin peaks was seen through the lens of what laura palmer meant to everyone there now that she's run away and left them i don't know if that's salvation or just evading your duties as a writer i I can't really it doesn't dramatically quite sink in what it could mean in part because tammy can't find anyone that remembers the timeline that she knows. That she, while she feels her cognition getting fuzzy, she's writing in her final moments, I feel like my grasp on this case is slipping away and that's why I'm writing this so fast on the plane back to Philly. But everyone that I talk to in Twin Peaks doesn't remember that Laura Palmer was killed. They remember that on February 24th, 1989, she disappeared. Why does Tammy remember this, though? This is what bugs me, is a year has passed. Tammy was not germane to any of this. If people remembered, I would think the ones who could remember would be Diane, because she underwent a massive transformation there at the end, and Laura and Cooper, who went into the zone and did the time travel. I mean, Diane went 
with Cooper there at the end, they went off together, but then Cooper ended up going to Laura. I mean, it jumps around a lot, but those would be the people I could think would remember. If time changed, it should change for everyone. Tammy is not so important a person that she should get to keep her memories for another year. If this whole thing was written from the point of view of Albert, I... I'd still have this argument, but I might go with it because Albert at least had lived another life. Like, I'd even go if somebody had dual memories of the past and were questioning reality, but for Tammy to remember and nobody else to? Yeah, I mean, Cole. I mean, Cole was went with Cooper for part of that journey into the mystical realm. I would buy it that it once you enter the Black Lodge, White Lodge, maybe you do have a grasp on different dimensions and thus could remember two different ways that it would go about Laura as dead and Laura as missing person. But yeah, Tammy, again, you got the wrong person writing this dossier. And it becomes really questionable. Did Cooper come to Twin Peaks because he was investigating the disappearance of Laura Palmer? That wouldn't make any sense. No, the fact that anything would occur after that moment as we saw it happen the fact that the FBI would even be involved in Twin Peaks does not make sense. And what's interesting is they refer earlier in the dossier, Leland Palmer killed himself. And I'm thinking about how he bashed his head in in the jail cell. Now it's a different type of suicide, but Leland Palmer still suffered that end. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, on the anniversary, one year later, it is, I guess, because he can't fulfill his destiny. Jowde and Bob can't get it on. So what else, what point is there? Again, I, I'm not sure. I'm not sure asking why on these things really will reward you here. I mean, is anything else learned? I feel like there's a couple of happy tidbits I enjoyed. Minutia, Ed and Norma, one of the brighter moments of the entire series was seeing them get together. She mentioned they get married. Mm -hmm. And I think Nadine might end up with 80-year-old Jacoby. Clyde. Of course, both of those things were things that I took from the series when it ended. We got Ed and... Norma together, and everybody was thinking that the series finale or season finale would take place at their wedding, because that's how so many TV series do end. I don't think anybody expected Rubber Hand to punch Jowde. No, <laughs> that was terrible. <laughs> I assumed those two got married, and from that scene outside of the drapery store with the gold shovel, they basically, Tammy talks about that night and what Jacoby was thinking when he saw the shovel in the window. And I took from that scene that the two of them were going to get together. And that's one of the reasons Nadine was willing to let Ed go was her connection to Dr. Amp. And here it's made a little bit less cynical. It's that Dr. Amp actually provided to Nadine the mental clarity and the self-confidence that Dr. Jacoby could not as a psychiatrist. I found that ironic, but I assume those two were getting together from the way that scene was played. Yeah, and that again, I think that's my overall thought on this book, is that there's probably nothing revealed here. There are things that you learn, but nothing that you wouldn't have guessed if you paid attention to the series. If you, like me, had really gone in there and written things down and was really trying to to unlock that thing, if you were watching actively and not passively, 
90% of what's in this book is just confirmation you were on the right trail, I would suspect. But yeah, it was just nice to know. I mean, again, with so many people being <laughs> institutionalized and ruined, to know that Ed and Norma got a happy ending was nice. That Hawk is going to get the the department that, you know, Harry's still alive, mm -hmm. but uh, that Hawk is going to get his chair when that should pass. And he got Margaret's log, that the log lady, when she died, bequeathed it to him. And he hasn't heard it talk yet, but maybe if there's a season four, he will be the log lady. I did like that, that he hadn't heard it talk yet. And it also did help explain why Frank Truman came in in a pinch and why the Truman brothers, why one Truman became the other Truman. I think it would have actually been cleaner if Hawk had been sheriff in season three, except they obviously wrote stuff for Michael Ankeen and Michael Ankeen said, no, I'm staying in Hawaii. And so they then went, all right, well, we wanted this other actor in the first place, so let's bring him in. But I think Hawk should have gotten the promotion season three, but he'll get it. Yes. But it never explains why the hell Frank Truman has such a bitchy wife. <laughs> so much that didn't matter. And again, as we wrap up here, essentially in the final paragraphs here, it really does feel like Frost is saying goodbye. He's basically, to him, explaining what Twin Peaks is. It's a microcosm of America and all that you can experience in life. I'm like, mm, I think it's more varied than this, but there's a lot of white people going into institutions. But at the end of the day, I get that he was trying to put a bow on it. I was trying to think, is there anything left to uncover? Would you want this to continue in TV form or book form or comic book form? Is there in any way or is there anyone left? The only characters I could think of was that we never found out what happened to Gerstein Haywood and Stephen Burnett. You know, they were out in the forest. And Tammy doesn't know what they say. She says they're missing. So I, my presumption is if they did shoot themselves, Mark Frost would have found them while he was walking his dog the next day. I guess that's a mystery that could they carry this show? No. Yeah. Yeah. No, they couldn't. No. <laughs> Banshee is a character actor. The actor who played Stephen Burnett, he is not going to carry the series. Here's the thing. This is a true story is... Before season three started, when we were just starting now peaking, I talked to a toy manufacturer and they told me about these little desk tchotchkes they were making that were welcome to Twin Peaks signs that you could put on your monitor and would fit on a little flat screen. See, you know, I used to have debt monitor toppers when you had the big CRT television like stuff, but now they had this little welcome to Twin Peaks thing you could put on your monitor. I'm like, you know what? Give me a case of them because I was afraid they'd be hard to find. And sure enough, they were hard to find because at San Diego Comic-Con, those things sold out by day two. People who were getting the autographs of the actors there were desperate for anything to get signed. That desk sign sold out. Mine never shipped. Mine never shipped. I got my case in last week. The plus side is I can sell them for about double what I paid for them on eBay. The downside is I don't want a one of them. I'm done. I'm, I'm, I got way hyped for Twin Peaks and I got burned and I don't want more books. I don't want more series. I, I need time to distance myself so that I can appreciate what I used to love of season one again. Yeah. I hear what you're saying there. And I, again, I feel everything you're feeling to, and a less of an extreme, I think. I still think there are reasons to watch season three once. 
But I don't think there's actually any reason to read this final dossier unless you just wanted the co-writer of it to tell you, oh, yes, this is where the ambiguities lies. These are what you can rightfully conclude from what we presented to you. But of all of the Twin Weeks books, this is the least important, the least essential, the one I got the least out of experiencing. I would argue you could enjoy secret history without ever seeing season three and uh you know maybe not even reading you know seeing twin peaks at all there's something there to it here i just don't see its value other than to commemorate or to bury what they did in season three it feels like a bow on the series but yes i didn't love the secret history and this did really disappoint me when i just saw the page length when i saw the page count i'm like wait a second this didn't cost half of the last book, but it is half of the last book. So straightforward. It felt like a data dump. It really did. It felt like I went to the Wikipedia page on these people to find out personal life details that happened after the events. Like if you look up an actor, you know, it'll have early life, their career, and then late life after fame. And I felt like this is the late life after fame wrap up of Wiki on all these people. I didn't get a whole lot out of it. I'm interested to hear that you didn't either, Stuart, because I feel very jaded. I honestly do. I don't think I'm a fair critic of this book. I'm putting that out there. I'm reviewing this because I've been with you the entire time. I considered abstaining, wondering if I could be impartial because I did not enjoy season three. I, I enjoyed the ride and I enjoyed moments and I enjoyed our conversations. But when it ended, I felt very frustrated. And to come to this book already, I didn't know if I could be fair but I tried to be, and I tried to take this book for what it was. I was more interested in the information it gave than the writing style. I wasn't really judging Mark Frost or Tamara Preston for how they wrote or pacing because it didn't have pacing. It was data dump. Yeah, and Tammy wouldn't have great insight to these people. She's just repeating and condensing what's hearsay and things she's learning in a file from, you know, spending a couple days there. So to find that you have the same feeling about the book at least allows me to know that I, I'm not completely off base and just so jaded that I look at everything Twin Peaks with a evil eye now. That this book is just, it's kind of useless, but if you need closure, I feel this book provides a closure the last episode didn't. Because it does say, here's what happened, and I'm losing my memory, and I have to go now, here's what Twin Peaks was. When Twin Peaks Season 3 ended, it ends on a cliffhanger. What year is it? Where am I? That kind of thing. It leaves you hanging. It is the definition of a cliffhanger. Here, it doesn't answer any of the questions you don't know, but it's going to at least let you feel a little bit more comforted and a little bit more tidied up before you go to bed at night. Yeah, I, I agree. But the to me, what I was looking for is not here. What I was looking for is either radical new insights into season three. None are provided there. I cannot say that at any point. Yeah, little details about like, oh, that's clever or that, but absolutely nothing that would help me rethink everything that I had come to watching it on my own. Nor does it point to any direction about where they could go. Honestly, if it comes back, and I don't know that it would, but there is some murmurs. I know that Showtime felt like they got enough subscriptions out of it 
and maybe they're all their other shows suck so bad that they <laughs> could conceivably go on. If it goes on, I say leave Twin Peaks behind. There were lots of portals to lots of different places. Why don't we go to a new place? Not anywhere in the Pacific Northwest. And maybe Cooper can be there or not at some point. We were barely in the Pacific Northwest for the last season, Stuart. Yeah, that's what I would say is that if, if season three taught us anything is that this world can travel. And so why not go to Buenos Aires? Why not go to an entirely different place, pick up on a few strands about what Twin Peaks is, but just open it up to a whole world of characters that are younger and more enthusiastic (laughs) and less depressing. I feel like the Twin Peaks world is closed to me. I do not want any more. I would consider more of Lynch exploring a small community that's touched by portals to the supernatural. That I would consider. But yeah, this is, to me, the final dossier. Agreed. But I want to thank listeners, especially those who came with us through Now Peaking and all of the Books and Nachos episodes and really traveled the entire journey of Twin Peaks. I feel good having reviewed every piece of it outside of, like, the bobbleheads. Yeah, I. it's been a really weird ride, and some of it I haven't shared with you guys because, you know, it's personal, but yeah, me coming back to my own hometown at the same time this show was coming back and watching it at in the very same living room where I experienced the first one, yeah, I've had a lot of epiphanies, a lot of thoughts. It's meant a lot to go on this journey, and although I can't say it's been 100% fun, It has been very meaningful and impactful and a lot of work. (laughs) And I'm glad that we're at an end. I feel ready to set this aside. And yeah, I know I got other books to review. I have not forgotten. And yes, I promise you, in the weeks ahead, next week, I am covering Philip K. Dick's Radio Free (laughs) Albemuth. And then shortly thereafter, one a week, one a week, I promise you, a new Dune book until we are done with all six Frank Herbert books. And for me, you're going to get some more Hellraising stuff as we finish off that series. And then, you know, two years ago, I wanted to do some Stephen King reviews, but we Mm. wrote our own book. (laughs) And then last year, I wanted to do some Stephen King reviews, but now peaking was as time-consuming as a book. Yeah. And so this year, we're not writing a book. We're not doing a television series of reviews. I guarantee to get some Stephen King reviews out with the intent of a review of It out when It Part 2 comes out next fall. Yeah, that's the thing. You got a nice... Don't squander it. I mean, it can be done. You have a good 18 months Mm -hmm. to get to It. There's a lot of material there, but I'm, I'm convinced that you can cover all the ground that we've already covered in the movies on the page. And look forward to that. Yeah, I've read the books. I have the notes. I'm going to audiobook them to re-familiarize, but I have read the books. I have all my notes in my Kindle, so it's a matter of reminding myself where we were when we reviewed those movies and when I read those books, and then recording for our listeners. But I do enjoy this, and Stephen King is not gone. It is not abandoned. It shall return. But Twin Peaks will not, I don't think. So thank you for listening. You may think we've gone insane. We have. But I promise you, this is the end of our Twin Peaks journey. Good night. Thank you for listening to this episode of Books and Nachos. Now that you've heard this review, head to nowpeaking.com to hear Arnie, Stuart, and Jacob review every episode of the Twin Peaks TV series. 
You can also find many more book reviews at our website, booksandnachos.com. If you enjoyed this podcast, please help spread the word about our podcast by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. Books and Nachos is a crowdsourced podcast with no sponsors or ads. You can support our show by pledging to our Podbean campaign at booksandnachos.com slash support. Music is by Angelo Badalamenti. Music arranged by Aaron Lepley. This podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by any entity that created or produced the well-known TV program Twin Peaks. Books and Nachos is an independent television review podcast with no affiliation with Twin Peaks Productions Incorporated or any other company involved in the publishing, creating, or distribution of that show. All audio and music used in this show are the property of their respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. The opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Inganza Media Incorporated. Books and Nachos is a Vinganza Media production, copyright 2017, all rights reserved, and no part of the show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Vinganza Media Incorporated.